This is Bonjour Chai, the Six Million Are Still With Us edition. I'm Ali Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk to Jay Baruchel about death, the apocalypse, and our impending doom. We also discuss the Tech Shook, an event hosted this week by JNF in Montreal, and we have a special word of wisdom to commemorate Yom HaShoah from Rabbi Joshua Korber. Before we begin, I should note that we are recording without Alana today, as she is in the home stretch of rehearsals for her new play Mazel Tov, which runs from April 29th through May 8th at Kin Experience in Montreal. We are having a special Frozen Chosen night this coming Tuesday, with a special ticket price and a chance to mingle with other Bonjour Chai listeners after the show. And if you use promo code CHIPROMO on their ticketing site, you get a special price of $20 for their performance on Tuesday, May 3rd. David, Avi, have you been? I've I've been recovering uh, this past week. Oh, from what? what? From the epic seder that you hosted. Oh, epic! Yes, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I would say it's it was epic. Yeah, that's a good word for it. What? what for it, those of you who don't know, David, David was at my seder, second seder. I was invited. I know. I was so happy to come. It was it was like a marathon, and it was such a a contrast compared to my first night with my family. Oh, so uh, tell me. What was the first night and what made the second night so contrasty? Well, more more than anything, I think it was it was time management. You know, with my family, we were like in and out 45 minutes tops compared to the second night with you and your family. You know, we started at once the sun set. So we started around 930. And as I was leaving, my mom was like, you're leaving now just to start the Seder. We're going to bed. And I was like, this is how we do it. So, you know, it was like a four hour marathon. I think we wrapped up what by 1.30, 2 in the morning when we were done. Uh, 1.30. Sounds about right. Yeah. You guys kicked everybody out at one thirty, um, and you did not gloss over anything in in this in in the event. Yeah, we we say every word, but we have fun with it. No, it was a fun. Was it interesting? Was it informative? It was so f- oh, it was wonderful. I had such a great time, especially when we did like you know we were doing um, the the blood, the locust, and then when what was it lightning when we came down with the marshmallows? Your the family, hail, the hail, the hail. Sorry, the hail. I meant the hail. Marshmallows were tossed and thrown all over the place. I loved that. Uh, you had little puppets for all the plagues. The finger um, puppets can't cannot and, have a seder without finger puppets. And then, especially as you, as you warned me, where we we talked right uh, when Eliyahu was coming about the destruction of the goys. Yes, yes, and the song the, the shifo. Anyway, yeah, um, which I I've heard uh, that other people have this custom of singing it to that song. Um, people have popped into you know my messages to tell me that that's a thing that they do too so i guess it's really a thing and then uh and the food wasn't too bad and then we actually finished the seder with all the songs and everything beyond right we was... we did it all uh you and you've, you invited some other guests your uh, your whole family was there and your mother-in-law epic. and then some some students too yeah yeah we had a it was uh, it was epic i think it was one of our better seders um we had fun and uh glad you enjoyed it uh, have you have you had a time at a seder when you uh, drank a whole bottle of wine, pretty much, or more? Back in back in in the before days, yes, I would have I would have had a lot of wine for sure. Yeah, I, I cut down on this year. I had lots of the grape juice this well, year. Well, you know, given the whole you know liver transplant, um, you know, kind of kind of tamps down your wine uh, your wine consumption a bit, but uh, and your you know your cocktail consumption. We actually had the chance to uh, get together with uh, you and Alana. For drinks a few days before that before passover at a very fancy location that you brought us to yes secret location behind a secret door um if you want the address uh 
I can tell you about all the cool speakeasies in Montreal. Um, yeah. They made a, a mean mocktail for me. They did. They did. Um, speaking of wine, um, David. Yeah, indeed, speaking of wine. You had a story that you wanted to talk about um, that has come up in uh, Ontario. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, I mean, Avi, you like wine, right? I Apparently, I do. <laughs> So uh, this past week, an individual named Samer Abdelnour was visiting his family in Canada, and he decided to have an online order from the LCBO. He ordered a bottle of wine from Taipei Winery. Are you, are you familiar with Taipei at all, Avi? I am not. Uh, I was not aware of this story until I heard a little bit about it in our chat yesterday. Well, they, they make a really good beer. I've had their beer in the past when I was living in Jerusalem, but I wasn't familiar that they, they even produced wine. So Taibe, it's a small town north of Jerusalem located in the West Bank. Um, and when Samer took out the bottle, there was a white sticker covering the front of the wine bottle, and Samer ripped it off, and he discovered what was hiding underneath. And what was hiding underneath was, it said, of Palestine. And then him, him think you were going to say Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu arrived through of Palestine, I would I would say. No. But um, he was like, yeah. why would the LCBO, the Liquor Commission of Ontario, cover this up? So it, it, it was investigated. He asked why. This kind of blew up all over Twitter, even though I'm not on Twitter. And he was just sort of saying, look, as a Canadian, as a Palestinian, as a consumer of alcohol, too, this is he felt it was ridiculous, offensive, possibly even illegal. Um, and he just sort of said this. Even mentioning the P word, even saying Palestine, is now like deemed a threat. So what do you think about this, Avi? So, I mean, from what I understand, though, the story goes a little deeper than that, right? That this is related to the earlier issues with uh, wine labeling on the West Bank, right? That the, the, There were wineries that were coming from the West Bank that they did not want labeled as Israeli. And from from Israeli settlements, yes. Yeah. Uh, they didn't, meaning it was... On the other side of the green line, there were wineries that were labeling themselves as Israeli and people appealed to the LCBO to not label those as Israeli because they were not technically Israel. And the LCBO did comply with that, I believe, and that this is part of that whole sort of like judgment and ruling around that to say, well, if all, if this area is disputed, then no label gets, no country gets a label for that. Yeah, er, throw out everything. And it almost feels like when two siblings are bickering and sort of says, I want this toy. No, I mm -hmm. want this toy. Okay, both of you have to go to your, go to your separate rooms right now because you're both on timeout. And that's, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. So look, I have no problem with Palestinian wine. I think that if wine was made in Palestine, then you know, it should be labeled as such and things shouldn't be mislabeled as such. And when things are contentious, then it becomes a question, right? Uh, you would not label something, uh, you know, made in the USA if it was made in Portugal, right? We th mm -hmm. That would just be a problem. Um, and mm -hmm. those are clear cut rules and, and we have that. And what we have here is clearly... Um, you know, somebody went and muddied the waters, right? Murkied the waters and said, hey, um, this is a legally contested area, especially in Canada, because Canada hasn't recognized Palestine as a state. And therefore, you know, this is sort of, you know, in the middle there. Um, that bottle should not be labeled product of Israel because it's clearly not in Israel. It's on the other side of the green line. It's in the, you know, uh, you know, in what Israelis refer to as the Shtachim, the territories. And therefore, that is not... Um, Israel, technically, it should not be labeled as Israeli. And well, this is sort of in the same sort of thing. Well, if you're going to have it in one direction, exactly like you said, nobody gets to call that, you know, part of their land. 
could it could it possibly be because it's true officially there is no state of Palestine, but there are the Palestinian territories itself. Could it be a um, a fix where they call, sort of say this is Taipei wine of the Palestinian territories? I am not a uh, a political uh, expert in terms of uh, political geography and how it relates to international uh, foreign you know affairs. Not? I'm I'm not. Uh, I know people think that I am, um, but that is not the case. Uh, I'm an expert in making epic satyrs, um, and that's about it. A couple of other things, um, but yeah, I would like to see um, Canada hash out exactly where and what because this is a trade issue and. People should know where their things come from. I wouldn't want that wine labeled made in Israel. And I wouldn't want wine mm-hmm. made in, you know, Tel Aviv made in Palestine. Um, the same mm-hmm. way that, you know, and so to be able to make these specific rules. And I know that those rules exist even for very contentious, you know, areas for Hong Kong, for Taipei, for Taiwan, all of these, you know, Cyprus. these things that sort of exist, but don't exist. They, they exist, right? And everybody has you know, issue with calling something a certain thing and other things, other things, right? Canada should open a commission or at least have some sort of a ruling to go and say, this is the map. This thing gets to be called made in Israel. This area gets to be called made in the Palestinian Authority or Palestinian territories or whatever it is. Anything in the middle, anything in these areas, um, we are going to make it one side or another or be able to say both sides can call it or just have a clear ruling on what that is. And in this case, um, I think that it is the uh, side of the Palestinian activists who have, uh, who are hoisted on their own petards, who are victims of their own unintended consequences mm. um, in this case. And I, I feel bad for them. I, I want them to have access to wine, as, I, as they say, that is made in a country that they, you know, believe in, in a state, in a people that they, be- with a people that they believe in. Um, and I'm not here to deny them that. Mm. Um, but until that area is clear, I don't know. What do you think? I, I think. I've tried their beer. It's great. I want to try their wine next. And I think there can be some kind of compromise where um, I I generally try to avoid, you know, any Israeli settlement products. I I don't want to consume anything from a settlement itself. But I just feel that we can have some kind of compromise where we should have Israeli wine if we want to consume and drink Israeli wine. And we should have Palestinian wine if we have to call it the Palestinian territories for the time being. So be it. I, I, I think the more alcohol in this case, the better where we can all drink and be married together. Of course. Maybe maybe the solution is to put a map on the back of every bottle and to say, just made here and pinpoint it without any lines, without any markers of where it is geographically. Just point it yes. at, oh, this was made here, that was made there, this was made a little north of there, that was made a little south, and, and let people make their own decisions, and that's it. Amen. From award-winning journalist Marsha Lederman comes Kiss the Red Stairs, a compelling memoir of Holocaust survival, intergenerational trauma, divorce, and discovery that will guide readers through several lifetimes of monumental change. Marsha was five when a simple question led to a horrifying answer. She asked her mother why she didn't have any grandparents. Her mother told her the truth, the Holocaust. Decades later, her parents dead and herself a mother to a young son, Marsha begins to wonder how much history has shaped her own life. Reeling in the wake of a divorce, she craves her parents' help. But in their absence, she is gripped by a need to understand the trauma they suffered, and she begins her own journey into the past to tell her family stories of loss and resilience. Kiss the Red Stairs, available now wherever books are sold. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. 
Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Jay Baruchel launched his career from the humble roots in the Montreal neighborhood of Notre-Dame-de-Grasse and with a short time entered the Apodoverse, starring in Undeclared and appearing in many more films including Knocked Up, Tropic Thunder, and How to Train Your Dragon. He has written a book about his life as a longtime fan of the Montreal Canadiens and starred in a tragically hip music video alongside his spouse Rebecca Joe and Rick Mercer. His most recent project is We Are All Gonna Die, Even Jay Baruchel, a limited series on Crave about how humanity faces the threat of extinction and other catastrophic events. Jay, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you very much for having me, guys. So I want to get this out of the way first. Um, we're a Jewish show. The uh, record is out there as to... Hey, we what? are a Jewish show. Wait, Bonjour wait, Chai. Get the fuck out of here. No Did way. you not get it? No way. <laughs> oh, man. Do you know what we're getting into? Okay. All right. I, so you guys have uh, blown my mind. Blow my mind. Okay. All right. Let's what, get did it. you think it was about tea? Bonjour chai? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, it's the Montreal. I saw your names flash up. I thought it was something. Anyway, yeah, I was. Yeah, so we're a Jewish show. The record is out there for your ancestry. Your sister Taylor, who, by the way, is a very good friend of my co-host David right here, uh, Uh, is a rabbinical student. Uh, There's little in the way of the information about your relationship to the faith, the tradition, the history, all that stuff. I want to give you carte blanche to tell the world right now. Jay Baruchel, how do you Jew? Oh my God. You're going to start with that? Uh, um, I want to get it out of the way. We'll yeah. talk about the show. Don't worry. Okay. Start strong. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's yeah, a hard one for me to answer in an um, efficient way. So um, I am very proud of my surname, and I'm very proud of my ancestry on my father's side. Um, and certainly, however I feel about it, the way I put it is this, is however Jewish or not Jewish I might feel at different times, uh, the world never runs out of ways to remind me of how Jewish I am. Um, and, and so it's one of these things where if, I, if I'm being honest, I was raised much more by my mother and around her family. And we were a family, and my mother was Irish Catholic, and we were a family, one of those families that did Christmas and Hanukkah and Easter and Passover and we and 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 really, that was at my mother's urging. My my father's uh, faith was his, and he had he he wasn't trying to like he didn't need us to go to temple. He didn't need us to engage. Um, that was his thing with his family. Sure. It was my mother's obligation. She felt a sense of obligation for us to know. And so she encouraged my father to share his faith with us, especially given the surname that we have. Um, but she did all the cooking. She did. She prepared satyrs. She did all of that stuff. And um, so for me, I, I like, it's a community that I am in, inevitably a part of. But I also like, if I'm being honest, I feel much more part of my mother's family. I just was around them more and raised by them more and, 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 and all of that stuff. And my relationship with my father was what it was, which is its own specific thing, but it definitely informs that to a certain degree. It would, it would be impossible not to. So, um, however, I like I said, you know, the minute people start talking shit, I feel incredibly Jewish. You know, it, it, it is, and, and that, you know, it's like, I know how I look, and I know what my surname is, and I know how the world views Jews. 
And, um, and that is something I can't deny, and it's something that absolutely is, is sacred to me. Um, but I've also um, hate uh, this sort of uh, expectation that I, I, I'm, I'm never Jewish enough. And I, but I, you know, and, and, and all of that stuff. So it's just, is like a, it's a weird kind of thing that I have. Uh, I, I would posit like a lot of Jews, combination of like pride and whatever else. Sure. You know, I think from now on, you should just say that you're a yield orchard Jew and uh, take it from there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a bagel Jew. Um, because, you know, there is an obsession in Jewish community and Jewish culture with, with destruction or with, you know, the end of the Jews, right? This is how, this is how it's going to end for us, which coming right to your show, you know, it addresses all the ways humanity can be snuffed out, be it an asteroid or aliens. I, I'm curious what piqued your interest in the apocalypse. Yeah, I, I have my entire life been fascinated by, um, yeah, scary shit and, and shit that's a bummer, right? Like, and I, and I think that is absolutely, at least partly, a function of my heritage. Like, it just... I going to say, like, we are a little death-obsessed as oh, it, and it, you, you have to be. And, and by the way, my, like I said, my mother's family are predominantly Irish. Like, you know, th th there, there's a good dose of fucking gallows humor and, and, a, and a history of, of having the world grind you into paste on both sides. And, and so it was like, you know, and, and, I, and I don't like to be cutesy or cliche and talk about like uh, it, humor as a means of coping. And I, I think that that's an oversimplification as well, right? I, but I, I just know that I have always been interested in this stuff. And, and I think that that's like, I try to describe it to people that like, if you don't know what it's like to be born into a world where you just know that there are people out there who are hunting you, like that just does a thing. That just does a thing for you, you yeah. know. And it just it it makes it informs everything. How it, how it does, I, that's for someone else to do. But it, it's it sets the table. Today we happen to be. I don't know if you're aware. Today it happens to be Yom HaShoah, which is the day that uh, Jews traditionally traditionally there's no tradition of it. It's in less than 100 years, but it's the day we commemorate the Holocaust. Um, and the full name for it is Yom HaShoah VeHagvura, which is the day of the Holocaust and the, of the resistance. Um, something which is deliberately placed there to remember, you know, in the face of this. Jewish extinction level event, um, there was resistance. There's a sense of a need to prevail and being resilient uh, as a people. And this actually, I saw this and I was like, oh, this slots in exactly with what you're doing in your show, which is humanity always seems to find a way to survive, right? I can't imagine that this was an accident, right? This is just part of how you think um, about these, you know, nasty things because of the way in which, you know, this, this is in the air. Yeah, no, that that is absolutely that that's ab absolutely spot on. I think like that, like um, the world is ugly and it can um, beat the living shit out of us um, and reduce us, um, but that there's an inherent insufferable robustness to our species, um, you know, and and, uh, and 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 that you know, this idea that like we we can adapt. We can eat what we ever, or not eat what we have to, but we can find a way through that one sliver, right? And um, and I, you know, I I have never tried to unpack why I have that belief, but I suspect some of it is because, like, yeah, I, without putting too fine a point on it, you know, like uh, there's almost none of us, and uh, and so that kind of. But we, but I'm here, and so is my family, and uh, and that's not nothing. And so, 
I think that there is certainly a, a strain of that, whatever you call it, I don't want, I want to say pride, but hope. That there's, there's a strain of that belief in our show that like, as shitty as it gets, to some degree, the likelihood is we will, some of us will figure a way through it. Speaking of robustness, you, you are a, a proud Montrealer, a proud Canadian making it in Hollywood at the same time too. And I know you've talked a lot about being proud of Canada and even you mentioned, you know, slipping in the Canadian accent to how to train your dragon for the character of Hiccup. Do you, do you find that, you mentioned, you know, there's no, typically no voice in, in mainstream USA markets for the Canadian isms. Do you, do you find that that's important to you to rep Canada and is it changing? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and it's not so much as I feel an obligation to rep Canada in a vacuum. I just feel an obligation uh, for English Canada because let's be honest, like French Canada doesn't suffer these things. They 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 if nothing else, they have a sense of themselves that like I have envied my entire life. And, and they go to see their movies and they listen to their music and they know who they are and they hope people like them, but they don't really give a fuck. And they are who they are. And as a result, they've gotten to a level of sort of like cultural maturity um, that, you know, is what it is. And it's something to be envied. And, it's an, and, an, and, and if you grow up in Montreal, it's hard not to be inspired by, right? And I think that us as Anglo-Canadians... Um, and it's something that I've unfortunately thought about a great deal. We, we are, a lot of us are kind of um, gestated and, 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 and loaded, taught from birth to sort of be a kind of inoffensive uh, American that can slot in there if need be. Now, this is not in every household, but, you know, there are some households in Canada for which the brass ring will never be in Canada. It's in the States. It used to be in Britain. Now it's in the States. My household wasn't one of those. And, and my household um, was like, my parents never wanted, well, certainly my mother never wanted me to leave and never thought we should have to. And, and, and was quite proud and thought that we were in the best country on earth and that we were like God's gift to the world. <laughs> and so I grew up in that house. And so for me, it wasn't like, I have to rep Canada. I have to rep my, my, my community and my culture. And I just want to hear and be myself and all of this stuff that like nobody else from a, any other part of the world would have to explain why, right? Like no Aussie has to explain why they speak in their accent and use their terminology and reference their cultural touchstones. No Irishman has to do that. Nobody has to, but we constantly feel this obligation to sort of, um, yeah, to put these little caveats or, or to like, we'll make a thing that is 100% Canadian funded, built with Canadians, made in Canada, and yet we feel the obligation to put U.S. currency or U.S. license plate in a movie because we think that some American might rent this movie, be in it, then see our fucking money and be like, oh, fuck this. I don't watch movies that don't take place. You're like, that's just asinine. And it's this like, it, it is that small thinking that we kneecap ourselves, right? And, and, and we are American-centric. They are not Canucka-centric. They do not give a fuck. Nobody else does. So we kneecap ourselves, and no one's asking us to do it. And how do you start this interview by saying that you don't, uh, th that that Jewish thing is sort of there, but not there? That was the most profound Jewish statement, because all you have to think about is as Jews, nobody else told our stories. Nobody was going to, so we went to Hollywood and we started telling our stories, right? It was this self-preservation 
And as Canadians, we get shit for putting our stories out there. And sometimes when we water down our Judaism, we, oh, the Hanukkah bush, we get shit for that too. But like, you know, that's, that's the story of a people that nobody else wants to pay attention to is to sort of say, hey, look at us. We are here. We're doing stuff. And the same, you know, that. And I, you're in a game. That's great. And you're, playing, and you're playing in a game that's somewhat rigged to fail. Yep, like, 100%. You know, like, like, I'll read against you, right? So, and with everything you've learned on the show, as we wrap up, you know, what did you learn about us as humans? And then, is there any hope? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think what our show will provide is some really important, valuable data. Um, I think it's going to make people think about stuff that they weren't. I also think it's going to have, uh, it's going to put a name on fears that people have had that they didn't know were, you know, other people maybe were scared of, but it's going to be a commiseration as well. Um, but you're also going to be inspired. So you're going to see a bunch of people who you've never heard of, um, who are dedicated to protecting you from threats you weren't aware of. And, and that is, it's hard not to be inspired by that. Um, you're also going to be told what's best in you and what we can do steps that we can do, ways that we can participate, ownership that we can take that on, at the very least mitigates, at best case scenario, prevents and saves us from some pretty scary shit. So I think while it's like, it is absolutely a bummer about scary stuff, you're going to walk away feeling better about any of those topics, I suspect, than you did before. Well, to close it off, what's the uh, thing that you think happens um, after it's all over, right? If there, we, we have no way of knowing, um, that's the biggest bummer is because it's the one unanswered question that happens after we die, after the apocalypse, after whatever it is. Um, what's in Jay's mind um, as what happens when you die? Yeah, um, if I'm being honest, this is like, uh, I, I can give you an intellectual answer, but it wouldn't be this one. So I'll just give you this one. Um, I'm a rabbi. I don't even have an answer for it. All right. All right. Good. So, because I, I am constantly in a push and pull, obviously, as a lot of us are, right? Um, and this is where my sister and I, because I'm, I'm five years, six years before her. So I went through six years of Catholic school that she was like a baby during. So no matter what, and, and then I went to temple. And, and, and so I went to church as much as I went to temple. And so that stews in there and I can't take it out of me. So even if I can like... Even at a time in my 20s when I was an avowed, not avowed, but I would label myself as an atheist, I always felt like I was lying to myself. So I am a humble person. I try not to put name, I try not to sort of say I know what anything is, but in my heart of hearts, I feel that my dad is still with me. I feel that my grandparents are still with me, and I feel like that I'll be with them again one day. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Jay Baruchel. The show is called We're All Gonna Die, Even Jay Baruchel, and it is out on April 30th on Crave. And as always, you can email us at bonjour at the cgn.ca to let us know what you thought. Thank you, fellas. JNF held their tech shook in Montreal this past Monday night. The event was a fundraiser for the Climate Solutions Prize, which is seeking to seed innovation and sustainable technology by offering prizes in excess of $2 million to startups that are able to achieve certain benchmarks in clean tech. So nice event, lots of networking. It was definitely great to be doing these kinds of events live and in person again. And I had a chance to ask some of the participants what they thought of the evolution of JNF from trees to tech, uh, as well as given that JNF stands for Jewish National Fund, how they saw the event and the work that 
JNF does as Jewish. Here are some of their responses. I think it's um, a natural evolution and a really wonderful one where JNF is still, I think, very much involved in greening Israel and they've been so successful with that. And one thing I always tell people when they ask me about what's Israel like is the thing that I love most about it is the juxtaposition of the ancient and all the history and culture with what is a very modern state and a modern place. I think that really embodies and encapsulates what is so wonderful about Israel with the JNF can continue their mission of planting trees, which now, you know, is, is you know, everybody's on board, right? They've been doing it for years, and now other countries are, are waking up to the reality that we need to be planting more trees. And then JNF is also sort of realizing there's many other ways that they can affect change and, and you know, work towards their mission. So I love that juxtaposition between the traditional and, and the new and the very modern. And I mean, Israel is very much a startup nation and a nation of entrepreneurs. And so I think it's just a, a natural evolution. I mean, I really think the, the strongest connection here, or maybe even the only connection, is the connection to Israel. And that's why it's a Jewish event. I think this could happen in any circle, in any community, in any city. I think it's a great thing. Uh, obviously, the Jewish people in this room here are proud to be working on this with JNF through JNF. But I don't think that there's much beyond that in terms of, you know, the Judaism in this. I'm always amazed at the Jewish events and the organization and the people that come together. And it's always nice to see people that you know. It's a, such a small world. We we'll live the same experiences as you did. It's a global organization and we're globally connected. That's amazing to realize and understand when you come to these events. I think it's very organic to the original mission of JNF, which is... Uh, to protect the natural resources, not only of Israel, but of the planet. And JNF is well positioned to leverage Israel's greatest natural resource, which is its brains, um, in harnessing new technologies to make a difference in climate change. Also, one of the core values of Judaism is tikkun olam. Mm -hmm. So, because we believe that making a difference in the world is part of our value, we, uh, you know, we're, 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 very, we're very interested in making this happen, you know, not only for ourselves, but for, for the world, for Olam. We just heard from Daniel Wolf, Stefan Waknin, Marina Steingart, Philippe Maman, and Aaron Zipes. So I'm curious, David, given your well-known and deep discomfort with uh, Tikkun Olam Judaism, uh, what do you make of these responses? A little flat and disappointing, I would say, especially at the end where, where they said, you were asking questions. How is this a Jewish event? You know, what is your Judaism involved? And I think the response was a lot of shrugs, uncertainties, and it's to support Israel and have tikkun olam. I don't even know if people at this point really understand when they say tikkun olam, what, what does that mean? I think it's just a, an easy card to play every time someone says, what is your Judaism? How is Judaism impactful and important to you? They go, tikkun olam, repairing the world. It always just feels a bit empty at this point. Yeah, there's, um, there's this, especially when it comes to issues of sustainability, I find that there's so many great Jewish sources that can and should be talked about um, that ground what is happening in terms of sustainability, in terms of you know, saving this world. And I know that saving the world literally is tikkun olam, is repairing the world, but there's so many other sources, so many other things that we can know to think to ourselves that this is actually a Jewish value. It's not just the general sense of like repairing the world and making the world a better place, tikkun olam, that with sustainability, there is so many sources, so many ideas that are very Jewish, 
by their nature um, that can and should be used in these contexts and that aren't, and therefore people don't make that leap to go and say, oh, this is something that is Jewish by its nature. And I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming these people for saying, you know, this is a terrible response. I'm just saying, I think because of our education and people who went to Jewish school, we just don't have these things to hold on to, to sort of say, this is important to me for sustainability because this, this is a, you know, a Jewish issue and the reasons why. I just think we don't have the tools in our tool belt to explain it and, and understand it and know it, including myself. You know, to be fair, though, it's a very far cry from where it used to be, um, at least with JNF. So JNF, to me, is always most popular, most known for their blue boxes, right? The, you had the little yes, blue box where you put the tzedakah in. And on the side of all the blue boxes, uh, there was a line from the Torah. Um, I'll just give you the translation. It says, you know, and you shall come in the land and you shall plant trees. And they made it seem like it was a mitzvah to plant trees. And to a lot of people, there was this idea that we are doing a mitzvah and we are planting trees. Now, I'm not saying that it's not necessarily a mitzvah to plant trees in general or to, you know, see the land and to do good things for Israel, for the planet, for all of this, you know, f- for the general sense of all of this. Um, but that phrase was half of a, of a pasuk, half of a verse, which was taken out of context. And it was when you get to Israel and you plant trees. And then it was like, well, then these are the rules that happen. And these are the laws that apply when you get to this point oh. in, in the land of Israel. Uh, and so it was kind of disingenuous of the JNF of yore. Um, and I like this idea that we are, the JNF is moving from trees to tech. The idea that like one of the, the, the people there that mentioned, I thought, oh, Israel's greatest national re- natural resource is their brains of the people. I'm like, great, we are going to harness mm-hmm. that. That's better than just saying, oh, we're just going to plant trees. And as we saw in our, that, that movie last year that we, we reviewed and we spoke to the director, uh, trees planting, it was kind of a questionable thing, but like, fine, we're going to move away from that. Not that they don't do that anymore. Um, they still plant trees, but we're not talking about that. They're moving on to tech. They're moving on to um, sustainability in other and interesting and new and different ways. Great for them. Um, but why don't you ground that, find, you know, educational opportunities to go and say, these are Jewish sources. This is what we're doing is fundamentally Jewish. And this is why we think it is part of the this whole process. And, you know, and that's that. But do you think people are actually even interested in finding those connections between the Jewish sources of, of, of olden days to what's happening today? Do you, or do you think people are like, I don't care. I just want to go to this, this event. And I believe there were even a lot of non-Jews at the event. I don't know how many people were there. There was a, it was a couple hundred people. It was a nice big event. And okay. I'm not going to speak for everybody. And I, I don't think that it's true for everybody. But I'm sure there are people that would like to know that, that this is a profoundly Jewish thing. And there are people that don't. And they're not interested. Um, but as a Jewish organization, I think that the responsibility is there to at least offer that as a, you know, as something. I, I'm very well aware that Judaism, as a colleague of mine put it yesterday, um, Judaism is a hobby for most people, mm-hmm. right? And so it's there and it's interesting and it's something you do. But at the end of the day, there's no fighting about, you know, hobbies, right? I was in a session yesterday uh, about pluralism. And I had remarked, and I'm curious, your remark, right? When you, you hear about all this pluralism, so much of the pluralism that we were talking about, it was a Jewish session for Jewish professionals, um, was about the, so much of the talk of pluralism was about um, politics, meaning uh, w- pluralism for people on the right versus people on the left within the Jewish community, or Israel, Right. right. And what was the limits of tolerance of understanding of your position vis-a-vis Israel? And I was like, but there's no there's so many issues of pluralism around Jewish topics, right, about Jewish practice, Jewish ritual. But I was like, oh, but nobody thinks about pluralism within a minion context, right, within prayer or within or how it excludes certain people and includes other people and how you have to work with that or with kosher, with other Jewish ritual things. And that's where my friend goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Judaism is a hobby for most people, for most for most Jews. And you don't fight about 
pluralism within your hobby. It's like, okay, you want to believe that? Great. And and that was heightened for me at this event Monday night where I was like, oh, great event. I really liked it. And I thought it was doing great work for the Jewish community um, and for Israel. Uh, absolutely. But but that compression of like saying that there's nothing really Jewish that was to the whole thing was, you know, I, I felt it a little bit. And there was a, there was a vibe there um, that was, uh, yeah. Because it's easy to wrap wrap yourself around in the flag and support it, as opposed to doing some of more of that heavy work, digging in and sort of saying, "What is the? What are these values for me? What does this represent to me?" That's that that's harder. And I really like what you said about hobby. I, I think that's quite true. That goes back to the uh, the four children in the Haggadah, right? Maha voda hazot lachem. What is this work that you want to do? They're just asking these questions. Some of them want to know. Some of them are not interested, and you know, and uh, that's it. But um, some of I, them uh, go off to yeah, go, take a nap and go to sleep. You know, so it's really like. It's there, and I think that uh, it's my exhortation that Jewish organizations should take that responsibility better um, and should say, we are doing Jewish things. This is why it's fundamentally Jewish. Um, it, I, I can assure you many rabbis would love to go and help um, lead a session, even for the staff, so that the staff knows more about it, and so they're able to talk about it more intelligently. Um, will it uh, lead to more dollars in, you know, in donations? Will it lead to more coins in your blue box? I'm not sure. I'm, I would even venture to say probably not. But do I think that it will make for a better and more educated Jewish community, which in the long term will lead to longer term commitment to Jewish organizations? I think so. Um, somebody should feel free to try and prove me wrong. You should go to the next event as, as the rabbi. Well, I wait to be invited. I don't just show up and say, hey, I'm here. <laughs> the invitation is in the mail, Abby. Our word of wisdom this week comes from Rabbi Joshua Korber of Beit Rayim Congregation in Toronto. Yom HaShoah is always a sad day in our calendar, and it's very painful, but this year I'm feeling the pain differently because I'm feeling it against the backdrop of rising anti-Semitism in Canada and worldwide. And what worries me is not just the anti-Semitism, but a sweeping indifference to it. Um, B'nai Brit, as we know, released an annual audit which found that despite a drop in overall incidents, there was a sharp rise in violent incidents. The week before, Queen's University Faculty Association joined a growing list of institutions who reject International Holocaust Remembrance Agency's working definition of anti-Semitism. This is really scary because there is no doubt a problem with the way certain professors and student organizations talk about Israel. There is a real problem with anti-Semitism on our campuses, and now it's even trickling down into high schools and elementary schools. We're seeing school boards take positions on the conflict which alienate and isolate Jewish students. And rather than take ownership or responsibility to address the problem, they want to throw up a straw man argument about freedom of speech. It's not a healthy, open conversation about human rights. It's just an all-out condemnation of Israel. And I'm going to be the first person to tell you that the conflict is not black and white, and we need to have an open conversations, but that's not what this is. More and more we're hearing people say the quiet part loud. Anti-Semitism is coming out into the open, and aside from the Jewish community, most people seem cool with it. Last week I gave a drash on Parashat Bishalach, the seventh day of Pesach, the crossing of the Red Sea, and I came across an obscure midrash from Midrash Abkir, where God is deciding whether or not to drown the Egyptians in the sea, and Uzzah, the archangel of Egypt rises before the creator and says, Master of the universe, you created the world with the attribute of mercy. How then can you drown my children? And God asks all the other angels of the nations to speak up, and they all speak up to defend Uzzah and Egypt. Whereupon 
Michael and Gabriel, the angels descend to Egypt and retrieve a brick in which a Hebrew baby, a slave baby, had been immured alive. And upon seeing this evidence, God immediately renders judgment on Egypt and drowns them in the sea. It is so frustrating to me as a Jewish person that there can be so much blatant open anti-Semitism and you can have a room full of academics tell you it's not anti-Semitism. It's just like the Midrash. All the angels of the nations speak on behalf of Egypt, but the evidence is there. And I firmly believe wholeheartedly that we will have our day in court in this world or the next. And now it's time in the show where we talk about our nachas of the week, the thing that makes us feel good about our uh, Judaism, makes us give that little warm nachas feeling. David, what's your nachas for the week? Well, you know I love all things sporting, right, Abby? Of course. The sport, right? I am I'm I'm a fan of the sport. I'm a sporting aficionado. Um and my favorite bouncing ball team is obviously the Utah Jazz. Of course. Uh, not because of how they dribble or D up. Uh it's it's because every time they have a home victory, do you know what song they play at the end? Um no, actually I do not. <laughs> <laughs> well they're they're in the thick it's nothing of Mormonism. Mormon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're in the thick of it in Utah, you know, Latter day Saints country, but they actually play Hava Nagila. Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> they do. So, you know, Jewish people have been there and they were always questioning why they're playing Hava Nagila. And I think the response was, you know, they sort of said the consensus was that it feels celebratory and it's fun and it just stuck with them. They even they even hold a Jewish heritage night each season, the Utah Jazz, usually during Hanukkah. And, you know, is this appropriation? I think that's a question for another day. I'd like to go there and watch a, a bouncy ball game and enjoy Hava Nagila. Excellent. Abby, what's your nachos? My nachos of the week is uh, an article by Sabina Wex in Hey Alma, um, that wonderful, great Jewish um, website that puts out fun content for people that are clearly uh, younger than me, but uh, I still read it I anyways. love it. Are you a Hey Alma fan? Oh, I'm a huge Hey Alma fan. I, I, like, I am not the right demographic for this, correct? You, I'm sure they would say you could be any, but it does speak to a, a younger crowd for sure. Yeah, the youths, the youths. The youths. Anyways, um, the article is called My Father is the World world's top Yiddish expert, I don't speak it, Hmm. and yet the Jewish language has refused to leave me alone. Um, It's a wonderful article about identity and about personal identity. Uh, It struck me actually on Yom HaShoah as the day when uh, so many people, you know, talk about the culture that was lost, right, in addition to so many other things, clearly, but one of the things that we talk about on Yom HaShoah is the culture that was lost, um, you know, uh, as a result of the Holocaust, and one of the things there in that world is the world of Yiddish culture. And Michael Wex, who I know, I know from Kles Canada in Montreal, in Canada that I've gone to for several years, uh, and uh, who is a great Yiddish expert. He really is one of the world's foremost Yiddish experts uh, of the language for sure, and culture by extension, definitely. And uh, he um, and his daughter, doesn't speak the language. And so as much as we talk about a Yiddish Renaissance and the availability and the ability of us as a people to go and take a culture that was lost and rejuvenate it, um, you don't always get to make those choices. Um, And it speaks to me, it's a metaphor for Judaism itself, right? And how we sometimes you know, are force it on our children. Sometimes they enthusiastically take it. Sometimes they unenthusiastically take it. Um, and sometimes they just refuse and that's okay. And we, we're not really in control of that always, but it was a great first person essay. Really made me think about all sorts of different things.
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of April 29th, Shabbat Parashat Achare Mot. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm David Sklar. 